0: I would like to make a few comments. I
1: don't have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad.
0: We see Americans hating each other, fighting each other, killing each other at home. There
1: is a religious war going on in this country. It is a cultural war. This war is for the soul of America. Because of the way this society is organized, you have to expect that there are going to be such explosions. Our side, our side, our side.
0: Uh, we are a people in a quandary about the present we are a people in search of our future and as we see and hear these things millions of americans cry out in anguish Did we come all this way for this it all seems a long way from a time when politics was a national passion and sometimes even fun <laughs> On a larger scale to fulfill the promise of America. Three, two, one. We are met here as Americans,
1: not as Democrats or Republicans,
0: to solve that
1: problem. Welcome to the Pothole Problem Podcast. I'm your host Jack Miller, coming to you from the White Tiger Studio in Portland, Oregon. Before I get to this week's interview, I want to preview an episode coming up in the next three weeks as of the day i'm recording this there are 394 days until the next presidential election and as many americans are aware the presidential campaign has been going on for a long time already the president himself formed his re-election campaign organization almost immediately after being inaugurated and many democrats have been vying for their party's nomination for that long or longer two of the top tier democratic hopefuls elizabeth warren and bernie sanders officially launched their campaigns this past february So if either of them are the Democratic nominee, their official campaign will last over 20 months. But of course, they were both laying the groundwork for their campaign months before that, even years. Given that this is something I've run into a lot of outrage and frustration about, for episode six, which launches just about a year before election day, I'm going to look at the length of the presidential campaign and examine how people feel about it. To prepare for that show, I'm collecting people's thoughts and feelings about how long the presidential election lasts. So if you wanna be included in this collection and maybe have your voice aired on the show, send a brief recording to jack.miller at pdx.edu or click the email icon on the website potholeproblempodcast.com i look forward to hearing from you okay on to this week's show which features an interview with tyler wilkins a co-founder and co-director of participatory budgeting oregon we talked about his organization and his evolution from a libertarian in idaho to a participatory democracy activist in portland and we discussed not only the direction he wants to see our political system going, but the turning points and realizations that brought him to a different perspective on the government and its relationship to citizens. And here's Tyler. Welcome to the show, Tyler. Thank you. It's good to be here. Why don't you start off by telling me about your organization and what it is that you do? Okay. Uh, so I'm co-founder
0: and co-director of uh, an emerging local nonprofit, Parts of your Budgeting Oregon. So, my particular stake is I oversee our outreach and advocacy efforts. Participatory budgeting is a democratic process in which uh, normal people get to decide on how to spend a small portion of a city budget through a binding decision or vote. And that's
1: kind of just a really small snap of what it is. It's It's not about people participating in the setting of the entire budget, it's about having a slice of the budget that is open to a participatory
0: forum. Yeah, absolutely. And so people get to have a stake in how that money's spent. So they get to actually decide on what. Being proposed for that budget, and then ultimately get to decide on what gets passed through. So in normal ways, if something gets, I don't know like a, a new park is being built, and they want public input on it. It's like, hey, do you like how this park is being built? And it's kind of just that advisory, right. you know, opinion kind of status. So that kind of. Transcends that and allows people to, instead of just saying how they feel about something, actually decide on what that something is going to be. Does this exist in places in the United States? It does. Yeah, it's actually a relatively new process. It started in the late '80s. The first documented cases came out of Porto Alegre, Brazil, and that was in the late '80s. And it was born from a labor movement and from a very authoritarian-style government. And it was the people trying to regain control. And uh, there were some gross wealth inequalities out there. And so it was really people trying to get back how money was being distributed in their country, and so it's since we've been come to the United States. Uh, some off the top of my head, Seattle does PB, New York, Boston, a couple places in Canada. And um, do you know how much, what amounts, or what percentage of those cities' budgets are given over to this process? Yeah, know? they they vary mm-hmm. in application. The, a fun thing about Pursuit budgeting is it's very flexible. No one uh, process is unique because it is being designed by community members. Uh, so it is going to be a little bit different everywhere you go, and it depends on kind of the buy-in from local government as, as well. It should be in a participatory system, it's going to look different when different people implement it on the ground. Absolutely, uh, New York they do district wide PB, so everybody in a district gets to participate, and it's one million dollars in each district that gets to spend. I forget the total amount and what the percentage is of, but you're looking at a decent chunk of of change in those. Uh, there's a youth based participatory budgeting process in Boston in which the youth get to spend, uh, I think five million dollars of the city budget. A citywide youth-based
1: PB process under 18 yeah, the these are people who don't even have the right to vote for their city government but in Boston they get say over a chunk of money five mm-hmm. million dollars yeah so this is I
0: mean this is a pretty radical process and that and there's a there's a point in the process where you, a, a steering committee convenes and they're really designing the process it's, the steering committees consisted just in community members and that good PB would make that a representational group so you're really focusing on racial demographics ethnic demographics and you know to get a snapshot of the entire community at large. So they're really designing the rules of the playbook and they're doing the goals, they're deciding like how they're going to do outreach, they're deciding how voting is going to take place and so many PB processes that have happened in the in the US actually there is no age limit or there's a It's like thirteen and up or something, and so they try to reduce as many barriers as possible to have people participate in this process. So age is a thing. Some people really experiment with like ID to have a legitimate process. You still need some type of people identifying, you know, who they are. And so some people will take, you know, a a letter that has your name on it, or you know, can experiment with all those things. With really that overall theme
1: of reducing barriers to have the maximum amount of people participate. Is this kind of an end in itself to establish a chunk of City government budgets that are done this way, or is there a broader hope that people will become more involved in the overall budgeting process through experience with this?
0: I mean that absolutely. I think more more closely, it's just
1: a tool of the more participatory democratic you know system. Right. So you're and trying to introduce a new tool, not necessarily as your goal, as hope maybe as a, as collateral impact, mm-hmm. people will become more involved. But your real goal is to, is to get this tool inserted into city government processes.
0: Yeah, to get institutionalized is like the ultimate goal. And you know, the, the collateral, there's definitely kind of like these side benefits that, that you see. And it's things like you know building relationships with government and um, reestablishing trust and you know
1: increasing methods of participation and you know you have all these side benefits from the process. If people do actually feel as though they can have a direct impact on some part of what their city is doing, that will that will definitely have ripple effects. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but your organization, that's not your big picture play. Your your big picture play is to get this particular tool tool into the arsenal of city government processes.
0: Yeah. And well, I would say even bigger than that, though, are kind of more meta is, you know, we have a really strong racial equity focus. So we're really about getting people back to the decision making table that
1: have been left out for a long time. One of the biggest sources of political alienation and apathy and the lack of voter turnout is that people often rightfully so feel as though they don't have any impact and they can't have any impact and their vote doesn't really matter. And they don't see themselves in any meaningful way, participating in government processes. Their apathy is understandable. Mm -hmm. And this sounds like geared towards giving people an experience where engagement actually has an impact. And it's beyond just well go vote and then you vote and you vote for the loser or you vote for the winner and they don't do anything they said and of course you're just like well what did i even bother for and a lot Mm -hmm. of other people look at that and say well i'm not even going to bother to vote this is well you could actually have a real impact on money being spent in your community and so that's going to then say to you especially people who are historically marginalized not only electorally but just in terms of their level of engagement Get them involved. Mm -hmm. Well, that sounds great. So how did you get started in politics? Like, what got you interested in it in the first place? And how did you get where you are right now? Uh, So actually kind of random, I've only really been engaged
0: in politics for the last few years. And when I started at Portland State University in 2016, I actually was going for my business major. Uh, I had taken a long break into my associates at community college. And I was wanting to go back to school, but I wasn't really sure. So I was like, I think, you know, business sounds good. I took marketing and I was like, you know, make some money. I'm good at talking with people. Did your parents say you need to have something practical? Oh, it was. Yeah. I, a lot of my family is in Silicon Valley in California. So lots of kind of that money making, you got to do something, you know, business. Right. So
1: business was the natural direction that your childhood and family was pushing you.
0: Yeah. So I, Ended up doing a cluster course at PSU, when I was doing Business One Hundred and One and Public Administration Three Hundred and Thirteen, which was fundamentals of public service. And part of the the class, it described like the uninformed voter or the uninformed citizen, really, mm-hmm. and uh, actually really similar. They talked about potholes in, in a book that we read of you know everyone's so quick to just be pissed at government if, you're, if you have a pothole on your road or something's not working. And I was just like, that's totally me. I was like really unengaged. I didn't vote. I didn't care.
1: You were like, yeah, that's me. Yeah, absolutely. And it wasn't a particularly uplifting group of
0: people. Yeah. And the way that it described me was so perfect and how I like, cause I used to like to just talk smack on government and it talked about that too. And I was just like, it described me so well. And then it really talked about the importance of government and governance really in general and, you know, administration. So I was,
1: I was like, there's something here. Was this like a breakthrough moment for you? Or did it slowly sort of build that you, you gain more political awareness or was this an it was, it was it was an aha moment. It was a little bit of both
0: because uh, it really I didn't get super involved until like about a year afterwards when I took some more classes. But that was it was enough for me to change my major then and there. That started you right away down right the road away. In politics. Well, Because I was also taking leading social change, which was the cluster. So I was taking that class as well, which was really kind of values based. Like, how can you do work that is more aligned with your values and your morals? And it was not the sexiest class either. It was pretty dry in terms of like governance. So I was really surprised that it resonated with me so well. But it was a mixture of seeing that I could work, you know, based off my values and still make a difference. So that started you down the path? That was it, yeah. And are you happy with your job and what you're doing and you feel good about the work? I I do. It's challenging. It's been really eye-opening because there's kind of two ways we go about our work. One, we have to build up our organization. The other, we have to do the advocacy work to get PB, you know, a thing in Portland. Right. And so two very different things. And the building up the organization is kind of abstract. There's a couple models that we borrow from. We have kind of a hybrid organizational model. It's sociocracy and a little mix of like a worker led nonprofit. So just very linear. There's no real hierarchy in our organization because our work is so focused around equity.
1: So practicing just like a lot of liberatory structures. And and how's that going? Uh, It's difficult, man. It's. (laughs) (laughs) there's a reason why that's not the normal style of governance is because it's challenging it takes a lot of energy and intention the the attention part i think is really is really key there because uh you really really have to be explicit in what you're doing now i'm going to ask you the question that i ask all of my guests this is a podcast about political outrage i'm striving to myself and my listeners understand political outrage better so that we can make better use of our own outrage and the outrage of others in a constructive way instead of in a purely divisive way so The question is, what is something that used to outrage you and no longer does, and why the change? I think uh, there was many things I didn't like, but
0: I hated paying taxes. Pretty common dissatisfaction with government. Yeah, absolutely. I spent a lot of my youth in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, which has a really strong libertarian influence out there. So it was in my upbringing of like, oh, government's taking out our ta-, you know, it was a very
1: transact, I saw government as very transactional. And so your problem with taxes was that it wasn't a financial thing like, oh, I have less money to spend. It was mm. an ideological disagreement. Oh no,
0: Absolutely. And it was, you know, I didn't see that return. I was like, well, what do I get for this? And at the time, I really didn't see how far the government stretched out, but it, it really was kind of thinking of me being a customer of government and like, here's my funds. Like, you know, I had to wait long lines in the DMV, whatever kind of access to roads. I lived in like in the mountains and part of my roads were like gravel. I was like, I have to take a gravel road to my house, you know, all these other small things. That just didn't make
1: sense to me. Of you know what I was, you saw the problems. I saw the problems. That's the yeah. nature of the problem. And there problem was no return you for me. The, you, you saw what the government wasn't giving you very clearly, and yet you didn't have a sense of what you were getting for your money. Mm-hmm. So that was so you used to hate to pay taxes, and I'm going to assume, but I'll I don't want to assume anything, so I'll <laughs> ask you. You don't, you don't feel that way anymore. No,
0: and it's actually really funny because uh, we're campaigning right now for the upcoming Metro Green Spaces bond measure to be passed in November, which is a a tax package. And I'm out there trying to get people to get stoked on, you know, paying more taxes. You're now putting your energy
1: into a tax increase. Yeah, a 180 flip, absolutely. You're listening to the Pothole Problem Podcast, created by White Tiger Productions. At White Tiger Productions, we create experiences. If you have an idea for a podcast, a workshop, or a show of any kind, we'll help you go from concept to execution. We provide creative direction and production support. We've got a podcast studio, writers and storytellers, sound engineers and editors, designers, videographers, hosts, creative coaches, everything you need to manifest your creative potential. You name it or even vaguely describe it and we'll take you from dream to finished product. White Tiger Productions, you can do what you think and we can help you. Visit us at com and tell us what you're thinking about. Why the change, though? Why do you now no longer hate tax?
0: Uh, well, I think there's there's a few things. I think my education was definitely key in that and learning, I think, more so of the reaches of government and how really much more inclusive it is rather than kind of thinking it just as those infrastructure things like roads and water and this, this and this. But government really spans out to a wide array of things that, have, you know, that goes beyond that, really. So, I think becoming more aware of just how much our taxes really go into. But then it was really kind of the shift in approach of stop seeing myself as a consumer of government, but a participant in governments. And my work in education has kind of helped shape that, but really
1: has transformed my idea of what citizenry is. Right. So, the consumer model, as you referenced earlier, you had a transactional view. You know, I'm paying these taxes. What am I getting for it? I don't see what I'm getting for it, but I can definitely see the money that's being taken away. That's a very consumer transactional oriented approach. And you, so you now have a different perspective. What is one of the things that's not transactional that you now realize government gives us or that we get from government, I shouldn't say gives us cause that's a transactional term. What, what do we get? Mm. That you now see that you didn't that young Tyler didn't see. I'm gonna recognize this, but also recognize that it
0: still needs a lot of work, a lot of improvement to get better. but I have gotten to experience a lot of the partnerships that happen between government and you know, nonprofits and even like community members and uh, which money goes into funding that administration of those like I didn't know that taxes go into funding the departments and administrations and you know all these other avenues in government that really are aimed at grants and uh, other type of funding for these organizations to do really great work. So the government isn't just providing
1: services, they're providing development. Funding mm-hmm. in a way as well as you use the word partnership. They're providing opportunities for people to connect and work together That stuff and much more goes beyond the transactional model mm-hmm. That's a very clear and straightforward answer to my question. <laughs> I really appreciate that. That's great Is there a source of outrage which has come to replace that for you? My whole view right now is
0: all about like participation. How can we participate in governments? so while this might not be a source of like outrage it's still something that i really have an issue with in government and it's like how are we how is government engaging with its citizenry and how is it still viewing them as a citizenry and sometimes i feel like we're still kind of stuck in the idea of representational democracy of you know having government being the elites and the professionals and you know knowing what everybody needs best and then only using you know the the population as opinion based are we
1: doing okay Okay, we're doing all right so we're just going to keep making decisions behind closed doors the dominant model is the representation model which is we as citizens we give our opinions via voting and then feedback and criticism facebook rants Mm -hmm. and et cetera going to town halls and getting angry but the better model is a participatory model where we as citizens see each other as part of the process not just as a check and as a Mm -hmm. voice is that a fair way to put it yeah absolutely so you're outraged that we are stuck in a particular kind of model. I mean, this is a, you know, this really is a question of democratic theory at a certain point, though, in practice, it's very important is what is the relationship between the government and the citizenry? And we do have a dominant model in our political society, which is the representation model. And many people just see voting as their main nexus with the government. And then <laughs> yell every once in a while at the podium at City Hall. <laughs> and then yell, exactly. And and when you feel like that's your main input, yelling is not is it's an understandable reaction. You're working, though, on the ground Mm -hmm. on one particular thing that could potentially change some people's perspectives on what their role as citizens are Mm -hmm. by giving them a different experience yeah
0: absolutely and that's a good you know, transition into, you know, thinking about these these models of participation, because, you know, participatory budgeting is really just a small tool at a larger toolkit of, you know, participatory democracy. So what we're really challenged with is how can we continue attacking this system and open up these doors of participation? And, you know, one thing we kind of float around this concept of a civic pipeline, like how can we start engaging our citizens to be that, you know, to be engaged citizens and not just, you know, that transactional relationship. So uh, looking at, you know, school models and education, like what are we teaching? our youth and forms of getting, getting engaged. When I was going through high school, I had like a government 101 class or something. It was so dry and it was more of introductory view of what, how government is structured. And so how can we start shifting this and
1: really shift that perception of what good citizenship is? Right. I like the fact that you have this broad view of what needs to be done across the whole domain of participation, but you're working in one particular area mm-hmm. and you're, you're not trying to take too many bites or too big of a bite. Now, I I, I do want to play devil's advocate here for Mm. a second and ask you, how do you respond when somebody says, well, yeah, you know, that's great and people should be more involved, but it takes a lot of time and a lot of energy and it's very few people are going to do that because... One, there are just so many other things to do with our lives, you know, not only distractions, but other things that are very rewarding and very satisfying. You know, Mm -hmm. I have two kids and I like to spend a lot of time with my kids. They're teenagers. I'm very aware of the fact that I have a limited number of years with them Mm -hmm. and Time that I spend on political engagement is time that I can't spend with my family. Mm -hmm. And I also love to read fiction. And it's time I can't read fiction. And, you know, I like to watch good television shows. All of these things can crowd out political engagement. How do you respond to people say, well, yeah, there's just people aren't really going to set aside these other pursuits for a very energy and labor and time intensive participatory structure. We really do like our representative thing where we just pay attention to politics vote and then let the professionals do their thing
0: yeah i feel like there's there's many things that came to mind when, when you were speaking that. I think the first thing that came to mind, and one thing that we have to really bank on, is you have to have this radical faith that, I mean, this isn't so much in people being involved in the process, but you know, you have to have this radical faith that people are very much invested in their communities, and they're very much invested in the happenings outside of their communities as well. But you also have that radical faith that people can be experts in those in those things the idea is if you kind of set up this model and this process, like you might have people that might not have time and might not have the interest to get involved. But once this process begins and people really start to see these, these tangible outcomes that are coming from it, it kind of builds that that excitement. I mean, I'm a civics nerd, so obviously I'm biased in saying this like civics is exciting. When you're part of a bigger picture and you're part of something big and you're doing it and you're working with other people to get to that, you know, shared goal, it's really revitalizing and it's fun and it's engaging. And so you have to kind of have faith that after this a process like this begins, because there's always going to be critics, and there's always going to be that balance too of efficiency and engagement. And, you know, just how much should government step down and let people take over? What is that balance? And that is an answer that I don't think anybody has.
1: There are good reasons to turn over policymaking and policy implementation to a group of professional experts and to, at a certain point, curtail citizen input. I love when I hear people use the word balance because it shows that they don't think their answer is the right answer and the other answer is the wrong answer. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's it's a way of recognizing that there is virtue in a representative, professional, technocratic approach to policy, but that there are downsides to it, too, and there are definitely benefits to a more participatory uh, approach. You know, it strikes me that what you're suggesting, too, is that there's a virtuous circle here, an upward spiral, where if people get a taste of what participation can feel like and what it can impact at a small scale, that will generate more interest. And when they have to decide, well, am I going to you know spend the weekend binge watching the latest show? Or am I going to go and get involved in my community somehow? If they have had a taste of success and also just of the community spirit that comes with working with other people towards a common goal, mm-hmm. that they might be more likely to not spend the weekend binge watching mm-hmm. and spend the weekend, or at least part of the weekend, out in the community participating in their democratic system.
0: Yeah. And, there's, and I know there's research out there. And I, I can't quote it on the top of my head. But there's research that correlates increased civic Participation increase democratic processes and which people get involved in actually has a correlation to increase like public health to you know reduce crime to increase you know education retention and you know all these other benefits that happen when people start contributing to a system and you know working together and stop seeing kind of that individualist approach of looking at like what can i do that's just going to benefit me and when you start really opening up that and start looking at that transformative quality of being a part of something bigger i think that has you know ability to help people see that it, it is worth their time and that's part doing. of the
1: pitch too is that it, your health and well-being depend on <laughs> getting outside of your individual pursuits of pleasure okay well this is good stuff it's good stuff to think about i really appreciate you coming in before i let you go i'll ask are there any particular books or authors or podcasts or websites or documentaries that you would want to recommend to the listeners? And I'll, I'll put them in the show notes too, but is there anything that has particularly moved or inspired or informed you that you want to share with the listeners?
0: Uh, first of the case of my mind was Pedagogy of the Oppressed by Paulo Freire. Um, it is this book on critical consciousness and really gives me that radical faith I was just talking about that people really are capable of being active citizens and being kind of this higher purpose and coming together and you know really attacking oppressive structures and it's really based in movements and uh, just coming together. So that is more or less my Bible and the work that I do to, you know, really help advance that critical consciousness theory.
1: Well, it's interesting that you refer to it as your Bible and that you've used the word faith. And this is a secular political faith mm. that you, what you've referred to as radical faith is, is the faith, which is a leap of faith, that mm-hmm. if you get involved and work towards a better world and work towards yourself participating and and getting your fellow citizens to participate, that that will have an impact. Mm -hmm. Uh, That is a leap of faith. Yeah. So this is kind of a, there's a secular religion (laughs) aspect (laughs) to participatory democracy. I try to say that not in a disparaging way, but it's it's good to know that that's kind of what it takes. You know, we think of faith as being in the realm of religion, but there's a lot of faith involved in politics as well. Yeah. And,
0: you know, I think America, especially, but we are so punctual people and everything has to be efficient and everything has to be streamlined and everything has to be quick, but democracy is messy. And so there is going to be a lot of that area of like fear of like, is this going to work? But you just, you have to believe in it and you have to give in 100% to, you know, to make this a reality. So,
1: well, thanks for coming in today and sharing your ideas and your thoughts and your activities. I really appreciate it. Yeah. It's great being here. Thanks. (laughs) That brings us to the end of another episode. I hope you found the interview with Tyler thought-provoking and possibly even inspiring. I know that I did. Whether or not Tyler's organization is successful at getting participatory budgeting adopted here in Oregon, and whether his radical faith, as he puts it, is actually something that will move the needle on how people see and interact with the political system, I think it's good for people to hear about and watch someone like Tyler grappling with their own evolving views on politics, and also living out the consequences of their own political principles. I particularly like how Tyler acknowledges that it's hard to work within a political organization dedicated to egalitarian power and one that practices what it preaches about participation and inclusion. And how he knows that greater participation in any democratic process butts up against the need and desire for efficiency in policymaking. Next week, we'll hear from one of my former students who's now a graduate student in urban planning, which he's undertaking as preparation for a political career he intends to launch in the near future. He talks about the experiences he's had in life that brought him to this difficult and, I believe, courageous decision to throw himself into the arena and run for elected office. I hope to have you back for that. Don't forget to send me your thoughts and feelings about the length of the presidential election. jack.miller at pdx.edu or use the mail link on potholeproblempodcast.com. Until next week, I'll leave you with another song. This is Home Free by Frankie Holiday. Thanks for listening. From I want more I want more Take God we oui. oui.